Would you stand with me, please? Amber's coming this morning to read to us as we continue in Romans chapter 12. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. This is the word of the Lord from Romans 12, 9 through 13. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Have you ever had the experience of staring at a word too long and after a while it doesn't look like the word is correct anymore? Had the experience of saying a word out loud over and over or hearing a word said out loud over and over and after a while even though you know you're looking at the right word it's spelled correctly you know what it means but for some reason your brain it feels mushy now and it seems like it's a nonsense word there's actually a term for that sensation that phenomenon it's called semantic satiation just in case you missed that second word satiation Maybe we'll just experience some semantic satiation with it if I just keep saying it. Satiation, satiation, satiation. Are you tired of it yet? Satiation. It's such a strange phenomenon, but that happens to us not just with words we don't say very often, but especially with really common words and something's happening in our brain that we just don't quite understand. Well, actually, this term, semantic satiation, was coined by a psychology professor from the University of Hawaii who described it this way. He said, semantic satiation is what happens when our brain experiences fatigue. We start to hear the word or see the word too many times and our brain essentially gets tired of interpreting it for us. So we hear it the first time and the second time and the third time and the fourth time and our brain just gets tired of trying to tell us what that word means semantic satiation it's a strange sensation and all of us have experienced it before i begin with that this morning because i want us to think of this not so much in terms of a psychological condition but with regard to the word that paul uses here the word love and as we begin this section which honestly this is the part of romans 12 i've been the most excited about it's been the part that I've felt the most passionate about as I think about using this chapter to, to, to launch us into a new year together. Paul uses the word love here at the beginning and frequently throughout this part of Romans 12. And it's as if the Spirit is saying to him, as believers, as followers of Christ, the word love can never lose its meaning in our lives. And that's hard because... We live in a time when the word love is so often misused. And then it's overused in its misuse. And so it can lose its meaning for us if we're not careful. But for the follower of Christ, as Paul begins here, love must be sincere. We can never 
allow ourselves to lose the meaning of that word, the word love, in our hearts, in our attitudes, in our speech, and in our actions, at the root, at the heart of everything about who we're called to be as followers of Christ. Love is the center. And so Paul, as he continues in these very practical words in the book of Romans, starts off with the command, love must be sincere. Now, just to prepare you, I don't do this to you very often, but today, this is a 12-point sermon, all right? 12 point, I'm not kidding. So we got work to do, prepare yourself. But the reason for that is because what Paul does here in Romans 12 in this, this section, he gives us 12 commands, one right after another. These are not suggestions. If you look at the language, the grammar, every single one of these that we're going to talk about, they are commands, they are absolutes for Christ-serving, Christ-loving, Christ-following people to put into practice. And so rather than trying to come up with a bunch of other points for you today, we're just going to take all 12 commands as they're presented, beginning with the one I've said already several times, love must be sincere. Now what this word sincere actually means, literally, it means without hypocrisy. Some of your translations might pick that up. The, the, the root of this word is without hypocrisy. It's the, the word hypocrite, which in the ancient world, in, in the Greek language in which Paul was writing, was such a common word. Because who were the hypocrites? Well, they were the actors who performed in front of people. The hypocrites were those who were, were, were playing out, acting out the great Greek dramas and Rom Roman dramas in the theaters. They were those who were playing a part. They were playing a role. They were wearing a disguise. They weren't being their, themselves in the moment that they were playing and performing. And Paul says when it comes to our love as followers of Jesus, our love is not a performance. And our love is not an act. Our love is not something that's insincere or simply put on dis display in a way that, that doesn't represent what's truly in our hearts. No, for the follower of Jesus, as a part of genuine Christian character, our love is without hypocrisy. Our love must be sincere. Now, why would we ever love that much? And how can we ever love that much? Well, it's very simple, as Scripture puts it. We love because He first loved us. Amen? The only way this is possible, to love others this way and without hypocrisy, is that we put into practice the love that we have received from God. And the book of Romans, as we've mentioned often now these first three weeks of the year, Romans 12 is so practical. But building up to this point, this letter is filled with really deep teaching about what we believe and how we ought to live as followers of Jesus. And think about some of the ways that Romans, this letter, has already described God's love for us. Again, we love because he first loved us. Here's some of the ways Paul has described God's love already. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners... Christ died for us even though we were sinners even though we wronged him and have wronged him in every possible way Christ still died for us 
And in this, God has demonstrated his great love. In the same way, our, our, our hope in Christ does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. We know God's love because of what Christ the Son has done. We know God's love because his love has been poured into our hearts through the Spirit. And then Romans chapter 8. I mean, what better words could we find in Scripture to describe how much God loves us than these? For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. How do we love in a way that is without hypocrisy, that is sincere? Well, in light of God's great love for us, as he has loved us, so we love others. Paul's also talked here in Romans 12, not only of God's love, but also about his mercy, and also about his grace. And because of God's love and mercy and grace, we, as a part of our genuine Christian character, listen, we do not take love lightly, but we take this command seriously, and it impacts every relationship that we have. It impacts our relationships in our homes. It impacts our relationships with our family members who don't live in our home and some of them who drive us crazy. It impacts our relationships with our friends, our church family, with our neighbors. And as we'll see next week when we finish this chapter, it even impacts the way we relate to our enemies. But in light of God's great love, great mercy and grace for us, we also live in a way in which our love is sincere. It's without hypocrisy. And interestingly, as Paul moves to the second command, he follows up the word love with the word hate. But when he tells us that we should hate, what it is we should hate is not a who, but it is a what. It's evil itself. And there are lots of different words the New Testament can use for the word hate. This word here is pretty unique. It's a rare word. And it means something beyond just the feeling of hate or even, even a, a deep-seated hatred. It means something like our English word abhorrence. That things that are evil ought to disgust us. We ought to hate everything that is evil and everything about everything that is evil. It should leave a bad taste in our mouth. It should make us sick. When we see that which is evil, we should abhor it. And listen to me, this includes everything that is evil. The language that Paul uses here is not giving us permission to hate only the evil that we want to hate and not the rest of the evil that exists or even the evil that we know is a part of our own hearts and lives. We can all agree that we hate and abhor certain things. I mean, I don't think I need to convince you that, that we should hate, we should abhor genocide, right? Or human trafficking or so, something on that level, that scale. We, we don't need convincing that that is wrong. But there are other types of evils in our lives and evils that creep into our attitudes that oftentimes we just ignore or we get used to it or we grow numb to it and we, we stop hating everything that is evil. From, from issues related to the sanctity of life, we hate those things. When the image of God is, is 
belittled in a person when life in the womb is not valued when the life of a person is dehumanized we we hate that but do we hate it when it gets to the level of our attitudes and our hearts things like racism things like the kind of language people use to demean others that we as christians we know we should know better than that hate everything that is evil and then the third command is and cling cling to that which is good now some of your translations might use a different word here than cling they might say be devoted to or hold fast to if you have a bit of an older translation it might say cleave to cleave to that which is good the the word here is the language most often used for marriage the way that as a, a husband and wife we're to be one and we're to cleave to cling to each other we are one in christ not only as husbands and wives but as brothers and sisters and just as we're called to cling to each other paul says here we also cling to what is good we hate we abhor what is evil but we cling to that which is good and and living that way hating the evil clinging to the good it takes discernment we live in confusing times it is hard sometimes to to know how to navigate all the mixed messages we receive but as the follower of christ who genuinely wants to display christian character who is is loving in a way that is sincere and without hypocrisy in my heart i long to hate everything that is evil especially when it's in me and to cling to that which is good to use the language of marriage to live in a covenant relationship with that which is good and to hold on to it for dear life because that which is good is also true and that which is good and true leads to life and not death and that which is good and true and leads to life and not death is also that which is in the light and not in darkness and those are the things that as a follower of jesus as paul says in first corinthians 6 whoever is united with the lord is one with him in spirit we we are called to live in such a way that we hate everything that is evil and we cling to that which is good as john wesley said we are not saved by our good deeds but we are not saved without them either which is a way of saying no no our good deeds don't lead us to our salvation boy our salvation though it always leads us to that which is good and if we are people who are not putting our faith into practice and actively seeking to do those things which are good and clinging to them then we need to to go back and remember what we believed about our salvation in the first place hate what is evil cling to that which is good and much like paul did in the beginning of romans chapter 12 he started with the individual he said you you need to experience this transformation that comes by the renewing of your mind and as a part of that transformation daily you will present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and pleasing to god he started with the individual but then he moved into the community and you remember we talked about this last week as the community of faith he says the church is like a body we are the body of christ and for this body to function correctly 
Everyone has a part to play. Every part of the body is useful and needs to be used. We all have gifts that come together as a body, as a beautiful mosaic that that shows the world a, a full picture of who Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, is. From the individual to the community, we all have a part to play. He does the same thing in this section. He now moves to the community of faith, and he says in the fourth command, be devoted to one another in love. And the language that Paul uses in this command, it's the language of family. First, the language of devotion. That's the language of, of, of how a parent loves their child. So, so in the church, in the community, we love each other like family, even family who's on the closest level. And what's it like to live with family? Well, Living with family means we often see each other at our best and we often see each other at our worst. But even when we see each other at our worst, we stick together. We don't abandon each other. And as a family, we're committed to not do things that tear each other down, but we know we're at our best when we're living and doing things that build each other up. That's what it means to be a family. And that language is true for for those of us who live in, in, in family, in our homes with others, but it's also true for our relationships as family here. I've been a part of this church family now for almost seven years. It's hard to believe it's been that long. My family has been a part of this church family for almost seven years, and let me tell you, we take these relationships seriously. We are thankful for them we love being a part of this community. And we know that, that what we're called to do as a part of this community is to do those things that build us up, not tear us down. And the same command is for you. Be devoted to one another in love. There's the love of a family, and then that, that last word, love, is a, a word that will be familiar. Philadelphia, brotherly love. We love each other as family. We love each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. And a part of that is the next command that we honor one another above ourselves. Isn't it noteworthy that so often when the Bible talks about loving others, honoring others, or serving others, that phrase is added above yourselves? Because God knows he knows our tendency to be extremely selfish. He knows our tendency to honor ourselves above others instead of the opposite. But in the community of faith, Scripture reminds us time and again, we honor each other above ourselves. We eagerly show respect. And in doing so, listen, we are an example. We are a model that these days is extremely countercultural to honor each other above ourselves and instead of only looking out for ourselves. And I would add to this part of this command a word to we who are adults. The responsibility that we have to model this honoring others above ourselves for those who come behind us. This is a way that we are called to be an example for our children, for our grandchildren. Prayerfully that it will be an example that filters down to our children's children and it will become a legacy 
that we, because of Christ's great love for us, as genuine followers of Jesus, we honor each other above ourselves. If we live in that kind of community with each other, think about the example that sets for our children, but also sets for those on the outside who would look in and see that unique aspect of our character together as we share it. We honor each other above ourselves. And as a part of that love and devotion and honor, the next command is never be lacking in zeal. Since we don't often speak that way, here's another way we might say it. Keep standing firm in your faith. Never be lacking in zeal. Keep standing firm in the faith. Be light in the darkness, even when it's not convenient, even when it's not comfortable. Never be lacking in zeal and stand firm in your faith. You know, these days there are a lot of things that are called courage, but they're actually not very courageous. The kind of courage that Paul's talking about here as the Spirit of God is speaking through him is the kind of courage that he's already described. It takes courage to love in a genuine and sincere way. It takes courage to stand firm in your faith and hate that which is evil. It takes courage to cling to that which is good even when it's not easy to do it. It takes courage to honor others above yourselves and to live in those kinds of relationships. But Paul says, as you live this way as a person and together, stand firm in your faith. Never be lacking in zeal. Take a deep breath. We're at the halfway point. All right, that's command number six. Command number seven is connected directly to it. Never be lacking in zeal, but instead keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Another way scripture describes this is simply do not be lukewarm. What does it mean to keep your spiritual fervor? Don't be lukewarm. And when we are filled with the Spirit of God, as Romans says over and over again, we aren't lukewarm, right? We're fired up when we are filled with the Spirit of God. We are passionate. We know what that spiritual fervor is. The problem is oftentimes we, we lose sight of that. Sometimes we get tired. Sometimes we're busy. Sometimes we're, we deal with a lot of hurt in our lives, and we forget about the joy and the fervor that comes in being a follower of Christ. That's why I believe Paul adds to this serving the Lord. Because one of the best ways to reignite that fire is to get out and put your faith into practice. And those of you who make that a part of your practice on a regular basis to serve others, to serve the Lord, to serve people in his name, you know there's nothing that quite reignites that fire like putting your faith into practice. I mentioned to you last week, I'll mention it here as a part of the message, the great opportunity coming up with our perspectives course that we're going to be offering beginning next week. As I shared with you in the past, when I took the perspectives course, I had finished all of my seminary degrees, and I had been serving in ministry for quite a while, and I went through that class, and, and there was nothing that I'd ever experienced in a classroom setting like that before or since. 
It, it ignited a, a new level of passion in me. And I remember sitting there the first week. Honestly, I went the first week like many of you can come without commitment, kind of feeling it out. And after the first week of that course, I said, I am all about this. I'm going to finish this. And it was incredibly impactful for me in my spiritual life. I would encourage you to consider that next Tuesday night. Come and try it out. You can come for the first two weeks for free and, and see how that might reignite a fire in you. Perhaps even a part, as, a part of as we're talking about Romans 12 for a new year and setting some goals, it might be a way to really help you in moving forward in some of your spiritual goals. Keep your spiritual fervor. Stand firm in the faith. Do not be lukewarm, serving the Lord. And then he ties together three commands, all one right after another. They're very short, but wow, they're important. Be joyful in hope, he says. Sometimes if we're honest, our hope in Christ is the only place we find joy. Sometimes we go through hard seasons. And in hard seasons, we might feel like it's kind of hard to find a lot of joy in things right now. But when we consider our hope in Christ, when all those other things fail to bring us joy, when we consider our hope in Christ, I pray that it brings a deep sense of joy, even if it doesn't come out like perhaps other forms of joy do, a way that comes out because of the hope of Christ that you would be able to say, nothing can take that joy away. Be joyful in your hope, even in the midst of the next word, affliction. Be joyful in hope. Be patient in affliction. Now, Paul's not saying here we should become a doormat. He's not saying we should become someone else's punching bag. But when we face hardship, when we face affliction, if we face persecution, Paul says be patient. One scholar defined it as have steadfast endurance. Even when you face the trials and hurts of these confusing times be patient in affliction and i would add to this resist the temptation to become the aggressors even when you feel like you're the afflicted sometimes we have that temptation i'm going to strike them before they strike me but a consistent teaching of the new testament not just here in romans 12 is this idea of being patient and affliction and even in hardship, even when we're persecuted, not failing to love in a way that is sincere. Be joyful in hope. Be patient in affliction. Be faithful in prayer. I asked our, our ministers to write out their goals for 2023 as we're talking about this as, as a church. I asked our ministers, I want you to write out your goals for this year. Get specific about some things that that you're hoping to see the Lord do in your areas of ministry. And I lost count at how many of our ministers said as a part of their goals for this year, they were really feeling convicted about prayer in their personal life, in their family life, in their ministry life. One minister after another put in their goals this conviction they felt about really focusing their prayer lives this year. Because they know, and hopefully we know, what the Lord says to us throughout Scripture, our Christian service and effectiveness cannot be truly Christian service and effectiveness if it doesn't flow out of a faithful life of prayer. 
too often we add prayer in at the end it's sort of like god i've made all these plans now bless them or it's sort of like god i need to add this in at the end because it's not going too well as opposed to beginning our service looking for those ways of true christian effectiveness by being faithful in prayer this is a part of our our staff goals for the year but also something we want to continue to provide more opportunities for us as a community that we will have focused times of prayer and seasons of fasting that we would seek the lord first and most with everything that we are considering that might be one of our goals or something we'd like to see the lord do this year be joyful in hope be patient in affliction be faithful in prayer hang with me for two more commands share with the lord's people who are in need at the root of the word share is the word koinonia is that a familiar word to you it's the word for fellowship now when we use the word fellowship in the english language we tend to think of hanging out and having a good time right when baptists think of the word fellowship what do we think of first food food and fellowship always go together i love what's happening out in our commons in our our areas you, you see we have some new furniture and some new decor already the last couple weeks i've seen people actually staying in church in the building longer and sitting down and hanging out we love that we're even okay when you have a cup of black coffee on those white chairs it's totally fine it's been really great to see people using those spaces and just enjoying being with each other that's a part of fellowship but when i hear the word koinonia i don't just think of hanging out having a good time i think of acts chapter 2 and acts chapter 4 some of you know exactly what i'm talking about when we hear that word koinonia in the early church fellowship in both acts 2 and 4 it's followed by and no one among them was in need they were one in heart and spirit they experienced koinonia with each other and there were no needs among them but instead everyone treated each other like they had everything in common and when they saw a need in their midst in the community of faith they did everything they could to meet that need and to make sure no one was left going without this is the way paul describes this here in romans 12 and in other places think about a couple of the other apostles what does the apostle john say if we claim to be in the light but we don't love our brother or sister we make ourselves out to be liars john goes on to say love is not to be with just words or speech but let us love with actions and in truth the apostle james he says our faith without works is dead if we see a brother or sister in need but we do nothing to meet that need our faith is useless but when we put our faith into practice we do what paul says here we share with our brothers and sisters who are in need we have things in common with each other and how many times have we seen throughout romans 12 these words generous gift and give being used over and again so descriptions of what it looks like to live in community and this is a command share with the lord's people who are in need and finally you have arrived at the last command 
It's a short one, but it's a really important one. Practice hospitality. Whereas the the next to last command was more about sharing inside the community of faith, though we are called to be generous outside too, this word hospitality in its very meaning gives us a sense less of what's happening inside, but more the way we treat people who come to us from the outside. Let me show you the word. The word that we translate hospitality is philozenia. And the root of the word zenia is the word that literally means stranger. Some cases it means foreigner. In some cases it means enemy. Hospitality, as the New Testament describes it, is literally loving the stranger, loving the outsider, even loving our enemy. When you consider the opposite of this word, this second word is one you probably know. We use it in English, but it's a Greek word, xenophobia. Xenophobia is the fear of the stranger. Xenophobia even leads to the hatred of the stranger. But hospitality is the exact opposite. Philoxenia is the love of the stranger. And as it's presented in the New Testament, it's living with a posture of welcome. It's living with a posture of kindness. It's treating people as opposed to having the default where we stiff arm them and we keep them at a distance. It's treating people in such a way, and this is risky, treating people in such a way that we have an open posture and within the community of faith, but also even in our own hearts, we are welcoming and loving and kind We don't speak about people in ways that lack love and lack compassion. I can't think of anything else as a pastor that gets under my skin faster than when people in one breath claim they love God and then in another breath say something that lacks all love and compassion. Philozenia is hospitality. And it is a biblical command, a biblical characteristic. As some of you may have experienced before, what we call today Middle Eastern hospitality, it has its roots in biblical understanding. Middle Eastern hospitality, as you will experience it even today among Middle Eastern Christians, but also among Jews, even among Muslim peoples, is one that if you show up on their doorstep and they don't know you and you need a place to stay, they most likely will let you stay in their home for up to three nights. Now, I'm not recommending that officially, okay, that every stranger who knocks on your door should get a bed for three nights, but it's become such a part of that culture that it's a way that Middle Eastern people, Middle Eastern Christians will say, we honor God by welcoming somebody we don't know, practicing hospitality. But I want us to think about this less in terms of a cultural trait and more in terms of where we began this morning. That we, as followers of Jesus, would never let the word love lose its meaning in our lives. If we're going to be generous, if we're going to be hospitable, may it not just be because we're forced to, but because our love is sincere. And as we love in a sincere way that is without hypocrisy, the Lord continues that work of transformation, of renewing our minds, and helping us to become that welcoming, kind, hospitable person who loves others as a default setting rather than being afraid of them or hating them. 
As we close this morning, let me, don't start packing up yet, but as we close, let me just say a word to our church. One of the ways that I like to look at this and how I pray our church will continue to function, and we really do a good job of this, is that our church would be a harbor. What does it mean for the church to be a harbor? Well, what does it look like when a ship comes into the harbor? The ship oftentimes comes out of waters that are dangerous, treacherous, the storms. But when it finds its way to a harbor, it comes into a place that is safe. It comes into a place that is peaceful. It comes into a place where it might find rest. But also it comes into a place where it finds those things temporarily, but then is sent back out. What would it look like for us this year as we're setting goals as a church to be a harbor? To be a place of welcome, to be a place of safety, to be a place of peace, which we have to model and live out with each other, remember? Being devoted to each other, honoring ourselves above, honoring each other above ourselves. But to be a place of peace, to be a place of rest, but also a place where we don't stay forever. It would be great if we could just experience this every single day, day in and day out. But we are not called to just sit and soak. We're called to be sent back out. And that's what a harbor does. A harbor receives, but a harbor sends back out. And as we're setting goals and praying about who we're called to be as a church this year, I pray that we will be a place of welcome, love, kindness, generosity, peace, safety, all of those things, fellowship, love, joy, fun, but that we will also be ascending church. And that may be the very thing that God has in store for you this year that's gonna be quite unexpected, that he has some element of sending you out that you haven't considered before. But through the work of the Lord and living out our love, which is sincere, I believe we can do it. I'm going to give you a homework assignment right before I pray. Write down, make a note, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. Just so you see consistency, I want you to read that text sometime today, 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11. And I want you to note how Peter is led by the Spirit as an apostle to write down almost the exact same words that we just read in Romans 12, 9 through 13. In very different settings and different times, the Spirit of God led Peter to write almost exactly what we read here from Paul. Why? Because this is consistent from the Spirit of God in who he's called us to be. As God has loved us, so our love must be sincere and we live in his love. Would you pray with me? Lord, I pray today that we would never let love lose its true meaning in our hearts, in our attitudes, in our speech, and in our actions. We love because you first loved us. And Lord, I pray that you would speak to our hearts today clearly about what that love is. As we've already read from Romans 5, while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. And in this, Lord, you have demonstrated what love is. 
I pray as we have this last moment of worship and an opportunity to respond, Lord, that we would look to the cross and we would see the clearest picture of love, that we would be drawn to your love and Lord, through your love, we would be the people that you've called us to be, living out genuine Christian character as Christ loves us. In Jesus' name, amen.